Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. All right, so Jacqueline, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, and I usually start my podcast by saying thanks for coming down because we record in a studio that is in a basement, but um, you're calling in from from Boulder, right? Yep, in Boulder today. My one day in Boulder this month. <laughs> You're one day in Boulder this month. So for all of you who are thinking about or are in the process of, of um, creating a national brand, you get to remember that she gets to be home one day this month. <laughs> it, yeah, so uh, why don't we start by having you introduce yourself and introduce your company to our our listeners. Yeah, so I'm Jacqueline Claudia. I'm the founder and CEO of Love the Wild, a little company that I started with a partner back in August of 2014. And we had this crazy idea that we were going to try to get people to eat more farmed fish because it's good for the body and good for the planet. And we've been working hard and growing ever since. That's fantastic. And your background, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, in your past you you ran a farm, a fish farm. Is that right? Yeah. I, um, I spent a couple of years scaling an open ocean fish farm and you know, really got to know a lot of people working in the industry who were, you know, far smarter than I was and absolutely dedicating their lives to growing the most sustainable fish possible with almost no environmental footprint and, you know, really having trouble because they're brilliant scientists kind of talking to consumers about the work that they're doing and really creating a market for this fantastic product that they were growing. And so I came to the realization one night that, you know, the world was probably better served by me helping these fish find a voice than by trying to grow fish, because there are plenty of people who can grow fish really well. And that's when I, uh, I convinced my partner, Christy, to join me, and we started this company. Wow. Helping these fish find a voice, what a wonderful phrase. So, um, so for somebody like me who knows nothing about fish farming, um, what makes sustainable fish farms sustainable? It's obviously a hugely controversial and complicated topic, right? But yep. to break it down to kind of the simplest, you know, explanations or the things that really drew me to sustainable aquaculture were the fact that, you know, fish have some of the most efficient feed conversion profiles of any animal protein that we grow. So to get a pound of fish that we can eat, it takes about a pound of food, and in some species now, less than a pound. And it sounds a little counterintuitive, but these are fish that, you know, they're cold-blooded, they float, so they don't have to expend energy fighting gravity, um, and lots of cool things with their metabolism that makes them incredibly efficient at producing these healthy proteins that also have nutritional components to them that aren't available in any other meat that we have. So there are things like seleniums and omega-3s that are found in higher amounts in fish than other places. Um, but the other cool thing is, you know, it doesn't take a lot of water. So when you when you grow hogs, for example, to get a one-pound pork chop on your plate, it takes about 3,500 gallons of fresh water. 
And to help put that into perspective, that's like running the faucet in your bathroom constantly for two days. Holy right? cow. Um, even though fish live in water, they don't consume water. And so, mm. you know, it's a very efficient use of that limited resource that we have. And we can actually grow fish in places uh, where people can't live. So we can't build houses. We can't, generally speaking, grow other crops in the middle of the open ocean. But we can grow really high-quality food there. So I think kind of those two things combined uh, really made aquaculture a standout for me and something that we really need to be taking a hard look at as we move into kind of our food future and look at our growing population and our protein demands. Right. And so here in Wisconsin, when I was a little girl, my grandparents, my grandmother in particular, would take me to this trout farm to go catch trout and it was like a pond on somebody's farm and I've I don't know if that's what people think of when you say farm fish it's what I think of um what should I be thinking of well you know Tara frankly you're really unique because most people when you ask them to close their eyes and picture a fish farm they can't do it right Mm -hmm. people haven't had that experience if you ask them to close their eyes and picture a dairy farm you know, they can pretty easily, you know, picture some rolling green hills and a little red barn and maybe some Holsteins walking around in a pasture with a chicken running by. Um, you know, that's not necessarily what every farm looks like, but there's a mental model for it. The cool thing about farming fish is that, you know, there are over 3,000 species that are farmed around the world, and there are many, many, many different culture systems for growing fish that are really dependent on the particular fish. So if you're trying to grow like a, uh, you know, it's like a sustain, like a Cereola rivoliana, which is one of the fish that I used to grow, which is, you know, essentially the hamachi that you get in a, in a sushi restaurant. This is a very warm water fish. It needs about 72 degrees minimum uh, Fahrenheit water. Um, it needs incredibly clean water, and there's just this narrow band of places around the world that kind of match um, those criteria. And so that's a deep ocean, you know, a, like a net pen situation. Um, Trout, like you used to visit, Tara, grow Mm -hmm. really well in ponds. They grow really well in raceways. So, you know, that's a a different kind of structure. There are a number of species of fish that can grow well in recirculating systems, which are, you know, completely land-based, like in giant fish tanks, um, if if you can picture that, Um, as well as, you know, stuff that does well kind of in estuaries or bays where they need kind of shallower water with, you know, a lot more nutrient activity in it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's not kind of one thing that people should picture when they think of fish farms, and I think it's that complexity that kind of makes it tough for people to wrap their head around. It's like growing vegetables, right? Like, you know, what it takes to grow beans really well is not the same stuff that it takes to grow a really nice head of cabbage. Right. You need different conditions, and it's the same thing with fish. Hmm. Well, who knew? So you came to this um, epiphany one day that the world would be better served with you creating a um, essentially a company that would make it easy for people to eat fish. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And so that was the that was the start of Love the Wild. Yep. We clinked the grass and we got started right away. I mean, I had been around enough businesses, both as a strategy consultant, where I spent the first know 12 15 years of my career and then running the fish farm to know that you know this was a pretty crazy idea and I could spend a whole lot of time and a whole lot of my resources and other people's resources 
um, kind of launching something behind closed doors and then making it available to the world. And that, generally speaking, is a huge disaster on all fronts. <laughs> so my partner and I wanted to get products in the market as quickly as possible and start getting consumer feedback. So letting people vote with their own dollars who don't know us and love us and kind of <laughs> use that data to tell us, you know, what the market wanted and how we could position. So we clinked our glasses in August of 2014, and we put our first products on the shelf in January of 2015. So that's really fast to kind of go through all of the seafood HACCP certification and everything to launch a completely food-safe product. But, you know, it was janky in almost every other way. I mean, it was, you know, we tested almost 127 different boxes on the shelf, different Holy cow. Cooking instructions, different recipes, different price points, just to see kind of what consumers were attracted to. And we spent about 18 months doing that in two stores, like on purpose, so that we could really manage it and really spend a lot of time there observing customers and talking to them and learning as much as we could. So that's how we started. That's fantastic because I think um, what I see much, what I see people do much more frequently is. Um, is spend a whole lot of time going down a path to create a product or, you know, a couple couple's SKUs and designing labels and all of this without trialing anything. And then they get it into a store and maybe it doesn't work like they thought it would. And then they have to go back to the drawing board. So um, all that experimentation is really smart. Um, you were... I mean, what were, were the retailers who let you do that? Because usually re retailers are, are, it's not easy to get them to support you through all those changes. Yeah, I mean, I think there are special retailers kind of in, in every hometown. And for us, it was Alfalfa's Market. And, you know, it was somewhere that I shopped and the people there knew me. And one day I'm like, hey, I have a product I want to sell here. What do you think? And they're like, well, you need to talk to Paul. So... I, you know, left my phone number. I'm like, okay, great. This is never going to go anywhere. But he called me that day, mm -hmm. and, you know, we talked for about an hour and a half, and then I went and I met with him, and I kind of showed him a prototype of what I wanted to do, and he said, cool, let's do it. When can you have it here? Cool. And has been just an incredible partner. I mean, like, he, you know, he understood kind of the vision of what I wanted to do, which is every retailer's nightmare, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Every other week, a different price tag that he has to update in his system every other week. We did a quadrillion coupons. Just, you know, we left them at the gym with one particular number on it, and we gave them out to our kids' friends at school with another number on it just to kind of see where our customers were coming from, if there was one channel that was better than another. But that's one of the things that really sets Alfalfa's apart from other retailers here locally is, they want to be the first ones to bring new products to market. And so that's that's a really big part of their cultural DNA. And I'm sure that there are alfalfas in other places. Yeah, I think I think you're right. A lot of communities have their version of those things. So, okay. And when you started, so your um, Love the Wild has sauces packaged with them. And was that something that came along through this experimentation, or did you have that idea of way in the beginning? Well, way in the beginning, the idea was, you know, people generally speaking, especially ones that grew up like me in western Pennsylvania, and we never ate fish except for Fridays and Lent, and it was 
some of the more traumatizing experiences <laughs> in my childhood, I have to be honest. So I didn't grow up a fish lover. I loved the idea of fish, but not actually that action of putting it in my mouth. Um, so the original idea was to put a sauce with it that made it taste delicious in kind of an idiot-proof way. And mm -hmm. we went through a number of kind of iterations of how we actually did the sauce delivery. I mean, when I first thought about it, you know, I, we, we launched a little bit with a pre-marinated piece of fish. And then we got strong consumer feedback that people thought that that was bad fish because that's pretty much what it is in the grocery store case. It's oh, all the stuff yeah. Yesterday, put some teriyaki on it, and now it's teriyaki kebab, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we're like, okay, let's do it separately. And separately actually turned out to be a lot easier just from a manufacturing perspective. And so we, you know, we made sauce, and we put it in these little molds, and we froze it, and then we took it out, and we put it in this compostable bag that we really loved because, you know, again, we don't want to be contributing to a lot of the environmental problems by excess packaging out there. And um, so we love that. Um, but what happened, what we learned was, you know, the freezer goes through a defrost cycle like once or twice a week at the retailer. And so our little cube, you know, grew fur, like this protective Oh, layer right. Fur. Yeah. So that was problematic. And then we also had customers would go grocery shopping. And then they would pick up their kids from soccer practice, and then they would take them to get ice cream, and then they would go home. And by the time they got home, you know, our sauces, a lot of the times they would melt. And then they would refreeze in the customer's freezer in this bag, and it made it almost impossible to get out of the packaging. Mm. So, you know, we went then to a tray that would give, you know, the product a little bit more stability. And so if it thawed and refroze, that, you know, the quality of the product would stay the same and also the experience that we wanted the consumer to have would stay the same. So the sauce was a constant. How we did the sauce was something that definitely went through evolution. That's fascinating. I mean, ergo, the value of all that experimentation in the beginning, right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah, because you could have easily made a gigantic, you know, hundred thousand plus dollars mistake launching initially with the wrong packaging yeah totally it's it's tough too i mean to think about you know for us we had a frozen sauce you know and so what can you put a frozen sauce in that you can get a frozen sauce out of right if you put it into like a ketchup packet then they would have to melt the sauce mm -hmm. before they could squeeze it out but then if you had an oil-based sauce, the sauce would break unless you put in functional ingredients to keep it from breaking. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to put crap in the sauces. Right, know? right. I wanted, them, I wanted them to go into the oven frozen. So it was definitely a lot of experimentation to find something that would, would do that work. Right. And now your product line has uh, how many different kinds of fish do you sell? Oh, uh, Let's see. One, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight. We're up to eight now. Wow. And are they all still uh, some kind of fillet of fish with sauce, or are you moving into other kinds of items? So we have a new product line, which is not a fillet of fish with sauce. It's going to be launching kind of early Q2 next year. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we're, you know, doing our experimentation with now. Cool. Um, the majority of those are the fish and sauce kits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, when you decided to first, um, you were ready to, to graduate from your first store, um, where did you go first? What market? 
Well, we had a list of places that we really wanted to be. And, you know, Wegmans was one of the retailers that was on the top of our list. And so, you know, we got to work kind of working through our networks to try to see how we could get into Wegmans. Um, but we, you know, we made a lot of mistakes too, right? So we, we had some mm-hmm. things that happened early on in our development. Like we were a participant in Fish 2.0 at Stanford, and, you know, we won some awards there, and that kind of gave us a lot of attention really early. Mm-hmm. And we had a number of retailers reach out to us and say, we want your products. And we're right. like, cool, great, you can have them. You know, we sent our products to anyone who wanted them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, we, you know, we grew our distribution you know, pretty quickly. I mean, not hugely, right? Like with of the course. money that we raised, we knew we could go into about 500 stores. And so we sold into 600 stores in about three weeks, right? And wow. So we spent a year kind of in those stores. Mm-hmm. But because we didn't have the discipline to say no to certain retailers, we ended up with kind of a motley crew of places where we were successful and places where, frankly, we weren't. Right. right. Either because our product wasn't the right price point for the market or, mm-hmm. just, you know, for a number of reasons, not a really great fit. So we did a lot of learning in that mm-hmm. perspective, and that's something that we're, that we're trying to be smarter at as we grow and definitely as we launch a new product line is being very strategic about where we want to go and where we don't want to go. Right. It is interesting, isn't it, when you're young, a young business, you're so hungry for sales, right? And it's such an affirmation after all that struggle. So it's really hard in the beginning to say no when people call. Well, I mean, it's it's definitely some of that, but it's also we raised money. In order to raise money, we told investors that we would be in a certain number of stores and be selling a certain number of dollars by a certain point in time, right? And right. So, to a large extent, you have to deliver on that, and it's really tough when you're in that position and you know you're going to have to raise more money later, and if you under-deliver on your current projections, you're kind of screwed. Mm-hmm. So do I go with this bird in hand, which, you know, I really wanted a chicken, but instead it's a pigeon, mm-hmm. you know, but it's a pigeon in my hand, or mm-hmm. do you hold off and wait for something that might be um, better strategically? That was something that we weren't very good at early on. Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure when you raise money. So when you started this, did you have any idea how much money it would take to create a national brand? And did you start thinking you would be a national brand? Um, yes to both. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I started this because I wanted to see the average American eating seafood twice a week for both their personal health and for the environmental health impact that we'll have. Mm-hmm. in our food production system. And the only way I could really make a meaningful impact on that goal was to be everywhere as fast as possible. So mm-hmm. for me to have kind of a boutique brand would be a failure in my mind mm-hmm. because it's not serving that larger mission, that larger purpose that I started the company for. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that, you know, I'm kind of really lucky that we're located in Boulder, which is I like to call the most unlikely seafood capital in the world, <laughs> um, so we have a lot of really smart food entrepreneurs here, and so I knocked on nearly every door and, you know, asked people to sit down with me and just talk to me. And so we had a, we had a very clear understanding of what the path is to grow a brand and how much capital you need to raise and when and what metrics you need to be at in order to be able to effectively do that. And so far, we're tracking. So cool. Small wins. Yeah, well, it, so you are super lucky because I don't, I mean, 
I did not have that when I started Tara's Way, right? I was sort of um, feeling my way through the whole thing because I'm out here in the Midwest where we don't have a lot. We have a lot of big established food companies, but we don't have a lot of young brands. At the time I started Tara's Way anyway, there were very few young brands that had started. So I could have knocked on a lot of doors and nobody would have been any more knowledgeable than I was. <laughs> Um, so you're really lucky to be in an environment like Boulder where there are a lot of entrepreneurs who have, you know, they've successfully started and exited companies, and that that's a, a tremendous asset for you. Yeah, I mean, and that being said, I think just the, the food movement itself is really accelerating. I mean, I email on a weekly basis with other startups kind of across the country and across the world that, you know, it's kind of, you know, in a small way, my part of, of pay it forward, I mean, I, I definitely am not at the stage that other people were who helped me, but there are some things that I've learned that we're able to help other people with, and, you know, you don't get any help that you don't ask for. I mean, mm -hmm. it just doesn't work that way that, you know, if you want to do it, it doesn't matter where you are, just, you know, send an email, pick up the phone, and, and ask for help. Right. That's a really good point, and I also think in um, the food world that, people are particularly willing to share what they've learned. You know, I think there are a lot of other industries where people are much less likely to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, so when, when you were starting this and talking to folks, how much money did people tell you you were going to need to raise to be a national brand? What we learned was, you know, you needed to pretty much fund it yourself to get to a proof of concept, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a product that people buy in a small distribution. Um, and, you know, that was something that, that Christy and I were able to fund ourselves, and mm -hmm. that was, you know, less than $50,000. You know, some people can do it with less money than that. Some kind of products, it takes more. We were self-manufacturing, um, and we did a frozen fish product, which is not cheap, right? You know, it had a lot of costs involved in it. Um, and then uh, about half a million dollars to scale, so to get kind of to the next proof of concept and just kind of out of your, your home kitchen or your commissary kitchen and into kind of a slightly larger proof of concept. Um, and then after that, um, you know, we, we raised about $3 million, which is what we were targeting kind of after that seed round. Um, and the goal there is to get us to kind of a small national footprint and um, to a certain number of sales, and then after that, you know, we'll have a choice to make to either kind of keep our business where it is and let it kind of fund from profits and grow more slowly or raise another probably large round, like a 12 to $15 million round, and use that to really fund kind of more explosive growth. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the thing that I didn't really quite understand at the beginning of the past is how much money you need to spend on marketing um, and driving trial for your product. Because getting that first product into someone's hands or into someone's mouth is absolutely critical. You can have the best thing in the world, and if it just sits on the shelf, you know, and no one tries it, you don't have a business, right? So really understanding that a lot of the money that you raise, you know, a good portion of it will go into covering your overhead, and a portion of it will go into kind of your manufacturing and your cost of goods, and the lion's share of it is going to be on building your brand and driving trial. Yeah, and that's, I think, 
that is the place where people just radically underestimate how much it's going to cost. And when when I started Tara's Way, people told me it would be a million dollars to do the na- to get the the first level of a national brand. Um, and I think it's easily 1.5 million. So my numbers are not actually that different from what you're describing, right? And and I think it's um, it's gotten harder to get trial. I mean, the retailers have become they it used to be the barrier was at the retailer level to get a new SKU in or an unknown brand into a store was a real chore. But then consumers didn't have so many options, and it was easier to find you. Now you, there's so many options pretty much in every category that you really have to spend money to get consumer trial. Yeah, and I, and I think more and more retailers are becoming more experimental around the edges. Like they're willing to take a winger on a little brand, but give you three months to see what you can do or pull you in for an in-and-out test. And, you know, then it's your job to make it fly. And that takes a lot of energy and a lot of money. Right. And people don't even know that they're necessarily in an in-and-out test, right? I mean, they're, they get in and they're so excited when, when it, it just don't have the context to understand the whole process that retailers use, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so for the other thing I tell people is I think different food products end up, what it takes to promote them is different. And it's kind of like you got to experiment to figure out what works for your product. So what, what did you go through to figure out what works for Love the Wild? Yeah. And I, that that is a really really true statement and i i would even go a step further which is what works for your product in one store like in one chain will not be the same thing that works for your product in another chain because customers shop different places differently right Mm -hmm. so very early on we did a lot of demoing um, and we have a frozen fish product that you need to cook Mm -hmm. and then serve and are warm because there's nothing quite as gross as a bite of cold fish to someone who's on the fence about cooking fish at home. And so it's a, it's a really difficult demo to execute, but it's highly, highly effective. When people try our products, they're hooked. So, you know, early on, we did as much demoing as we could, and we did it personally. Like, we'd fly across the country and spend a weekend in a metro market and do 12 demos, and at the end of it, you know, you're just, you're just full exhausted. You're so tired, yeah. You know? Um, and then we started to um, try to augment that with, you know, third-party demo companies. And, you know, generally speaking, that hasn't been as successful for us because we have such a difficult product to demo. Mm-hmm. That, you know, and, and when you're demoing our product, you get a lot more questions about frozen farmed fish than you do about ice cream. You know right, I mean? like, right. So the level of expertise that the person doing the demo has to have is really high. So... We had a couple of colossal failures, and and for us that meant, you know, hiring a demo company and spending a lot of money on them Mm -hmm. and having them sell, like, no units. Right, right. Um, Or, you know, would send, you know, friends in that market to the store and, like, there actually wouldn't be a demo when they said there was going to be a demo and we were getting charged for it. Oh, boy, yeah. yeah, So we, um, you know, we've kind of, you know, 
we we still do a little bit of third party stuff, um, you know, and and that's an interesting thing too. Is some retailers will require you to use their third party demo company and will not let you or your employees go into the store and do the demo. And so, for us, we had to get really um, really strategic about do we want to take the risk of either someone not cooking the fish properly or having bad information for people or just not representing the brand well? Was that more expensive? and riskier than not doing the demo at all, right? Mm-hmm. So that, was, that was a decision we had to make. And then, you know, the next thing was just, you know, in terms of driving trial, understanding what the right promo schedule is for your product in different retailers. And we're starting to figure it out, right? Like at first, you know, so, you know, in some stores we were going too deep with the promos and we were kind of eroding our quality proposition because people would be standing there scratching their head and saying, why can I buy this at 50% off? Right, you know, right. really kind of cheap underneath the covers, and I'm getting bilked on an everyday basis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, and in some stores, all you need is, you know, just like 25 cents off or 50 cents off. You know, so our product retails for about $10, just to put it in perspective. Right. Just enough to, um, to get a yellow shelf tag to draw some attention to it, right? hmm learning how frequently you need to promote and how deeply and, and what that does, you know, at each different chain is, is really critical. Mm-hmm. Do you have, um, so do you sell through um, distributors and have brokers? Um, for the most part, no. Um, most of our most of our stores we sell to directly, and we're really lucky in that way, but it's another double-edged sword. So we wanted to use brokers, and we interviewed a ton of brokers, but we didn't find anyone who had the relationships with the meat and seafood buyer. Mm-hmm. And so they'd be like, oh, well, I can, I can, you know, try to meet some people for you. And it's like, no, I, I can actually open the door myself. I need someone who understands how to make this category work in this particular store. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And right. And can do that kind of ongoing care and feeding. And so... Because we couldn't find that, we ended up having to do it ourselves. But that limits us to only being able to ship our products to people who can take a full pallet. And so there are a lot of stores that strategically might be a better fit for us from a price point or a customer basis, but they can't take a full pallet full of product, and so we're not able to go there yet. So do you think that's because the frozen and meat category is kind of been moribund in the supermarket? You know, there hasn't been that much innovation, right? So there's a lot of ugly frozen fish with no branding at all in the freezer section. Yeah, I mean, I think it's two things. I think frozen is really different than meat and seafood. And, you know, our product, because, you know, the vast majority of the net weight is fish, goes in the meat and seafood department. If fish wasn't the first ingredient on the label, it would go into frozen. So the same buyer that buys ice cream and pizza and, you know, evolve bowls and stuff like that. But we're, we're selling into the meat and seafood department. And it's a really complex category. And for that reason, you know, someone who's a meat buyer or a seafood buyer is usually a lifer. You know, they've been in that chair for 20 years and they might move retailers, but they're still a meat and seafood buyer. And that's really different from other categories in the store where someone might be buying ice cream for six weeks and then, you know, six months, sorry, for six months and then six months later they're buying shampoo and then six months after that they're buying apples, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Where it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's 
a much different profile of the buyer. So mm-hmm. that latter one that I just described is really kind of data-driven. So they'll, they have to come into a category and get up to speed really quickly. And so they'll look at what's been the performance of SKUs and what's the performance in the category overall and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and learn about it and then make their product selections kind of coming from that perspective where they meet seafood buyers. It's, it's, a, it's a much more relationship-driven game and then um, them basing their decisions on their expertise and their gut feel. Well, and the, and their bit, the majority of what they're buying is fresh, I would assume, the meat, the meat buyers, right? Meat and fish? Yeah, and mostly it's commodity. Mm-hmm. It's tuna at X dollars a pound. Right. Not necessarily, you know, Rog McAdams tuna. From, right. You know, right. Cindy Lou coming into this port. You know right. What I mean? it's, they call a distributor with this amount of pounds and this price point that they want to hit and then make it so. Mm-hmm. So with your um, with your new items, do you think you're going to be still in that part of the store or or maybe in the frozen section away from that part of the store? We'll it, definitely be in the frozen section away mm-hmm. from that part of the store. Mm. Um, and, and in some ways, it's a much easier category for us to be going into because it's an existing customer behavior where we're offering right. a better product. Where right. What we're trying to do with our current product line is get a new customer to stop at a door that they don't normally shop and make a purchase decision that they wouldn't normally make. Yeah, yeah, I that that is an interesting uh, conundrum. I see that with lots of people when they're doing really innovative things. One of the first problems people run into is the store doesn't know where to put the product. Like, huh. And then the consumer doesn't know to look in the weird place for the product. And so, yeah, that that becomes a very expensive endeavor. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the number one problem for our current product line is mm-hmm. we have a very high-quality, sustainable, premium dining experience mm-hmm. in the frozen seafood door. Right. And for the most part, customers who go to the frozen seafood door are just fine with five pounds of fish sticks for five dollars. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, they're not dissatisfied with the options that are in that door. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do is migrate kind of the fresh seafood buyer to that door to make their second incremental purchase for the week. So we're adding another seafood purchase to their basket mm-hmm. that wasn't there before. But mm-hmm. that's a really expensive behavior to try to build. Right, right. Yeah. And, and you know, you're not a giant food company. You're a small startup. So it, it becomes really a difficult challenge. So, so, Despite all of that, your brand is growing um, pretty significantly, from what I can tell. Yeah, we certainly are. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, how many stores are you in now? Uh, well, actually, by November eighth, so it's actually next week. We'll be in close to twenty five hundred stores. Holy cow! I think when I, I'm trying to remember how many stores you were in when I met you, and it was a lot less than that. <laughs> See, she knew. Holy cow! Um, yeah, that that's that's amazing. That's terrific. And and you're going into into chains that are pretty big. It sounds like if they're taking pallet quantities. Yeah, I mean, so we're in we're in Wegmans across the chain. We're in Whole Foods nationally. So mm-hmm. That was a huge win for us. We were in a few regions, and they moved it under a national buyer. And cool. We, we, 
we won that business, which was, you know, me chewing on my fingernails because we would either lose our top performing stores or get, you know, three times as many. <laughs> right, right. Oh, that my. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we are launched into um, 800 doors with Aholes under a number of banners. So, like Giant, Up and Shop, um, into Hannaford. And, Interesting. Know, some really kind of cool places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you know though that those stores would not are not the most premium stores, right? In my my experience, anyway, I may be wrong, but um, and it it would be very exciting if I were you. I would be really excited to see the brand succeed in a chain like that. Yeah, I mean that's that's what our hope is, you know. And you know, so we are, you know, to be clear, in like the top tiers. Mm-hmm. Chains, right? Um, yeah. So they segment their stores, and they've got A stores and B stores, right. and B stores, and many on from that. But I mean, the exciting part is that these are stores that, like my parents, who still live in Western Pennsylvania, can go and shop at, and they mm-hmm. definitely have a need for products like this because mm-hmm. there's not a lot of options in their stores, and and this is how we're going to have impact. So I think the customers are there. Mm-hmm. And. You know, I think I think time will tell how successful we are and how fast we can learn how to drive trial in this place. Right. Well, I I tell people that um that the Terra's way when I started it was definitely formulated for the natural consumer, right? And so, um, my big hairy audacious goal starting that would have been to be the number one brand in the national category and I just learned that I that tears weight is which is pretty awesome um the thing I never really even thought of was that mainstream retail would have my products and now that is true and so I think that what you're describing where the mainstream consumer and the mainstream retailers are looking for options like this yeah. um, and bringing what would have been thought of as more premium products in um, is really true. Yeah. I mean, even the way sh- shoppers behave in markets that have premium natural channels, I mean, I'm a great example. I have I have four kids, and so Saturday's my grocery shopping day, and I drive my minivan to five stores <laughs> to do my shopping based on kind of what's a good deal at which place. Right. have got a limited budget to spread around. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there's definitely um, some work that needs to be done to understand kind of how you will be priced in different stores in the same market and making sure that all of that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. if, you're, if your product is the cheapest in Whole Foods, you know, if it's a dollar or two cheaper in Whole Foods than it is in the big conventional store in the same town, then you're probably not going to drive a lot of volume through that big conventional store. Right. Pe- people go there looking for value. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're not priced appropriately, mm-hmm. it can be dangerous. Right, right. Who knew when you started that there were all these variables to have to think about? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, one of the early assumptions that we made that was bad and really dangerous was um, not understanding that different retailers have different margin requirements for the same product. Mm-hmm. So one retailer might be just fine with a 25 or a 30, and another retailer in the same town might want a 45. Mm-hmm. And if your price is the same, then that means it ends up on the shelf at wildly different prices. 
And if you're not smart about managing that, you can end up using all of those dollars that you put aside to drive trial just to buy your price down to your suggested retail price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's complicated. And, and you know, brokers, if you can find good ones, are really helpful with that mm-hmm. in territory, typically. But And maybe when you get your new product line um, that is more um, easily aligned with Frozen, you can get somebody who, you know, some representation that will be good. Absolutely. We are we're building an A-team right now to try to not repeat some of those kind of early learning <laughs> mistakes that we made. We're going to run straight up the middle with this one. Okay. There you go. There you go. It is interesting, isn't it? I think so many people start this, they, you know, not only do I have the most wonderful food in the world, but I'm going to change everything because my product is so unique. And then at some point we mature and realize that the whole grocery industry isn't going to change for us. Right. And some things are there for a reason and they work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's It's solving a problem, even if it looks like a problem in and of itself. And now operations. So do you, do you still have your own facility or how is that working these days? So we do still have our, our small facility, our one that can produce for know about 500 stores but we use it mainly now for R&D to do exclusive SKUs for um, for retailers or to kind of test something and Mm -hmm. make sure that there's demand for it before we move it into partners that we've developed to help us scale. Um, One of the biggest challenges for us as we kind of launch you know all this distribution really quickly is managing the manufacturing for the pipe fill. We might need 35 employees one week and, like, two the following week. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, that was really tough. And so we um, we found partners that can really help us flex and scale, and that's been a godsend. Right. Fantastic. And and your fish is frozen at the farm, right? Yeah. It's essential for both quality and also to have a smaller environmental footprint. Mm-hmm. So, so the life of this product would be that it is... Um, it is filleted on the farm and frozen on the farm, and I'm assuming it's flash frozen. So it's yeah, re- yeah. And, and relatively quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Like some of our fish comes out of the water and is frozen in backpacks in like six minutes. Wow. Others, you know, it could it could get up into maybe ten, twelve hours, but it's still preserving the fish at the peak of freshness versus um, having to go through the fresh distribution chain where. Kind of your best case scenario is you're getting the fish in the store maybe four or five days after it was harvested. Right, right. So, so in a in a way, your frozen fish is fresher. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I mean, it's, it's you know, freezing technology has come so far in the right. last twenty years that it's not the same frozen fish that you know that we had a long time ago, where mm-hmm. that fish was not harvested with the intention of being frozen. It was harvested to be sold fresh. And then when it kind of reached the end of its freshness, then it was frozen. Um, so you had kind of quality degradation from that. But also our ability to flash freeze things now kind of really protects the, the texture and the quality of the fish in a way that wasn't possible before. That my husband is a serious food snob, and I, I do blind t- taste tests 
fish with him all the time and make him try to guess which fish was fresh and which was frozen. And he's like wrong half of the time. Statistically <laughs> perfect. So. Perfect. So okay, cool. So so it's frozen. Then you you it's shipped, um, and then you package with the sauces, right? Or yeah, yeah. We have, we have you know what looks like an assembly operation. Mm-hmm. Although we manufacture sauces. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, capabilities around that. Okay. It, you know, I was going to say it's a complicated supply chain to manage, but it actually isn't really. You're just getting in, the fish is coming in as an input, and you're bring you're packaging it with some things that you're making. So, yeah. And then do you hold your own inventory? Do you have room to do that where you make your sauces? We used to, and now that we're growing and flexing so much, we're we're using off-site freezer storage, mm-hmm. and we're able to forward deploy inventory to mm-hmm. different points in the country so that we can fulfill orders and service customers more quickly. Holy cow. So do you have somebody who's managing logistics for you, supply chain? Yeah. Uh, we've got someone on our team who's in charge of that and uh-huh. grows every day. <laughs> uh, yeah. So how many employees do you have now? We only have six. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? With You can be a fairly big national brand, and if you're working with co-packers and other resources, it doesn't take that much staff to do it. Yeah. I mean, I also, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in having the right partners mm-hmm. and leveraging that expertise where it makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I think that when we are a $20 million brand, we might have 10, 15 people on our payroll. Mm-hmm. Um, and we probably won't look that much different than that as we double again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and um, so, so you raised a lot of money. Um, do you have a board? Yep. Yep. And are, um, is it all investors on your board or is it um, investors and other people? It's investors and other people, and, you know, we also have a board of advisors mm-hmm. who have an equity grant to kind of make their expertise and networks available to us as we need them, and, mm-hmm. and we leverage them a lot. But on our board of directors, um, you know, our company has two seats. Uh, our investor group has two seats, so one from our seed investors, one from our Series A investors, and we have an independent uh, board member that we jointly appointed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did the, um, at what point did you start having the fiduciary board? Because I think, I think people, when they're growing brands like this, I mean, people kind of float out there that, oh, yeah, you're going to have to have this board when you do this. And, and I think it's a big mystery to people and people resist having it. So I'm curious about what the timing of all that was with the growth of your brand. Yeah, so um, we were fortunate to have a good attorney early on um, mm-hmm. who helped us with our formation things, but then also kind of coached us through um, the responsibilities of having a company and having investors. And so, you know, early on, the board of directors was myself and my partner, mm-hmm. right? So right. we did a lot of things and then, you know, documented it with the attorney as, you know, these were board decisions and board notes. Um, it started to get real serious and real formal when we did our Series A, mm-hmm. um, which was a price equity round where we brought in kind of, you know, a venture funds. And then we have, you know, regular quarterly meetings and 
you know, ad hoc meetings as we need to as things come up where we need to make a big purchase decision or, you know, other issues that happen in the company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And did you have a more formalized advisory board right away? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we spent probably the first year with maybe 70 advisors, like people who would meet with us for coffee you know, mm-hmm. regularly, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? But, yep. but at one point we, um, we decided that we really wanted to kind of narrow the stable to a smaller group, and for us it was four mm-hmm. um, people who really brought a lot of value to our business mm-hmm. and give them an equity grant um, to be incentivized to really help us grow. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was really helpful. And it's not that we don't still, you know, meet with a ton of people and ask them for advice, but it's it's a different dynamic when you've got people with a little bit of skin in the game to help you. Right, right. Yeah, that's really smart. So um, so $3 million bucks is a lot of money to raise. Um, having been through all of this, what, uh, what advice do you have for people when they're like, when when they may be looking at this going, I think I need to raise a lot of money. Yeah, well, I mean, the total that we've raised is 4.2, right? So $3 million right. in our Series A. So yep. we did 500 in our first seed round on convertible nodes, and then 700 when we needed to grow, right? And then we went out and, and raised the A round. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a lot of work. It always takes three times as long as you think it will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because... Being an entrepreneur, it requires you to be overconfident because, you know, while only one in ten entrepreneurs are successful, ten out of ten start thinking they're going to be the one out of ten. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, but I think getting the right early investors with the right attitude helps tremendously as you go down the path and grow. So mm-hmm. our, our second round of funding was all of the same investors that were in the first round. Right. Um, because we managed them well, we communicated mm-hmm. with them well, we did what we said we were going to do, and, you know, we were kind of trending in the right direction. And, you know, for them, it's about kind of vision and leadership and showing your ability to kind of take action and mm-hmm. maybe less about the numbers and the market potential. Um, but as you get further down that path, it gets to be a lot more real about, you know, okay, what exactly are your margins? What exactly is in your pipeline? Like, where are you with these mm-hmm. conversations? Right, you know? right. Nice you want to go into Kroger, but how many meetings have you had? Right, right. And they're more sophisticated, right? So they know what questions to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, they also know how to help. Too. That's right. one of the biggest gifts with our board is that, you know, yeah, we have to have a lot more discipline mm-hmm. around, you know, how we present information. It's not that we're not disciplined in how we run the company, but kind of stopping and putting together a quarterly report and being mm-hmm. thoughtful about how we talk about our progress over the last quarter was not something that we had spent time on. Mm-hmm. But having to do that really allows these people to be able to help us, and they do. And that's been great. Right, right, right. And and they bring and your advisory board probably does too, but just connections and relationships in the industry that can help you grow. Yeah. yeah. The right the right phone call at the right time mm-hmm. can really open up a lot of opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And um when when I first met you, you her, we were just announcing that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was an investor. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what does it feel like to have somebody like that as an investor? Well, it's awesome from the validation perspective mm-hmm. because, you know, what we're trying to do is pretty controversial. And mm-hmm. to have someone with his gravitas in the environmental space, you know, basically saying, you know, I'm putting my money here because this is the future mm-hmm. and this is going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, it's given us a level of credibility that uh, is priceless. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's, it's a lot of responsibility. I mean, we now have as part of the decision-making process in our company, you know, well, what would Leo think about that? Right, right. You know, because, you know, his brand is now attached to our brand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need to be true to our mission and grow our company and perform our fiduciary duties mm-hmm. and at the same time make sure that we are, uh, that we're being consistent. Right. And do you think... So I, I think a lot of people have a belief that um, once you bring in investor money, it, all of your mission stuff goes, da- goes down the rat hole because investors, all they care about is money. And o- what do you think about that? I think you need to choose the right investors. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's been great for us is that the lead investor in our round is a fund called Aquaspark, which was one of the first aquaculture-specific funds in the world. Cool. Um, and they invest along the value chain from technologies that operate on fish farms to feed technologies to fish farms themselves. And we were kind of the last step in the value chain, so the thing that kind of brought aquaculture to consumers. Right. Um, and they have a very first-person understanding of how hard the road is for aquaculture and that, you know, it will probably take longer than we think to kind of gain consumer confidence and trust in something like this. And so Mm -hmm. um, they're in some ways patient investors, and and we chose them because they offer a lot of expertise, but also because, you know, our goals and our end end game is very much aligned. They will be Mm -hmm. happy when we get everyone in the United States eating farmed fish twice a week. Right. So will we, right? Right. Uh, we talked to a number of other funds who were very interested in, you know, what's our exit strategy and what's our exit horizon and can we flip this in two years? Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as I would love as an entrepreneur to take some money off of the table and buy my kids braces. Right. Um, you know, when you sign up for that, you have to deliver that. And I think that's where you need, you know, where you might end up having to make some of the compromises on, mm-hmm. on your mission in order to do that. So you knew those folks from your prior life, I would I would sus- suspect, right? Yeah, the- I actually I met them at Fish 2.0 back in 2013 um, when they had just started the fund, and I heard them talking about their fund thesis, and that was, you know, I told myself that I really wanted to work with these people someday, mm-hmm. and that was, you know, a year and a half before I started this company. And when I started this company, you know, the first day I hired my CFO and I was laying out for him my plan of, you know, this is what I want our sales to be here and this is when I want to raise this money and here are the people I want to raise it from. Mm -hmm. Um, We were able to actually do that. And that was kind of, that was really gratifying for me, for us to build a business that was attractive to the partners that we Mm -hmm. wanted to be attractive to. Right, right. It's it's a impressive thing to see um, because most people are way less intentional about it, and it um, they spend a lot more time struggling because they weren't as intentional as you were about yeah. all of this. Well, 
you have to understand, like, intention lives in the heart, but that doesn't mean that while we were intending to do our Series A with them, that we weren't out kissing every frog we could find. Right. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. To get yourself some options, to get yourself some negotiating room mm-hmm. um, when it comes down to the deal and the term sheet. I mean, having one suitor is not a recipe for success, and we really didn't want to be in that position, mm-hmm. regardless of how much we wanted to work with them. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, it's been an incredible ride um, to watch from the outside. I'm sure it's been an incredible ride on the inside. How's this all working with your family? I, I can't even imagine having four kids and doing what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I had three kids, but mine were grown. That, that but, adds fun to the game. <laughs> yeah. And they're young, right? Well, they're not so young anymore. My oldest is 14. Mm-hmm. And reminds me daily that I'm the worst mother on of earth. Of course, yeah. And my youngest is six. So right. They, they fit in that bracket. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's tough. I mean, I, I'm, I'm on the road more than what I imagined I would be. Mm-hmm. And every business trip that you need to take feels like it's critical. Mm-hmm. You can't just skip this one. Um, and so, you know, I'm not as home as I want to be. And I really thought when I started my own company that I would be much more in control of my lives. <laughs> I would be the one who gets to go and do story hour every Friday, but the reality is I just can't commit to that, you know. But I'm really trying to make a difference in the world and, you know, and set my kids up for something that will allow them to have an easier life than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side of it, if you if you ask any of my kids what they want to be when they grow up, you know, <laughs> my six-year-old will tell you she wants to run a fish farm. Oh. You know, my my 11-year-old son will pitch you, you know, three business ideas Shark Tank style. And also <laughs> always has a million websites going on where he's trying to sell organic skateboard wax or something. Oh, what a hoot. You know, just to, you know, just to kind of see the difference and and how they view the world. Like, you ask my 14-year-old what she wants to do when she grows up. She'll tell you what problem she wants to solve. Mm -hmm. She doesn't say, I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a lawyer, or I want to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of impact on a small level that, you know, I need to remind myself that, you know, although I can't be doing a lot of the things that I want to do with them, all the time, I am setting an example for them that they're really proud of. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I tell people that life is long, right? And you have times in your life when you can be, you have more more just clock time available for your kids, and then you have times when you don't, and it all kind of comes out in the wash. Here's for hoping. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I I get it, but yeah, no, that's it's um you know, it, it is it is a sobering thing to hear what it takes to do what you're doing, right? And I think it's important that people hear that because um I, I you know, I I knew what it would take because I were, I ran a company before I did this. So in the food industry, so I already knew about the travel stuff, you know, and I had kind of organized my life. Um, the level of stress of being a startup with investors in it, though, is is orders of magnitude higher. Well, that, that was one thing, honestly, that was really hard for our team, is that, you know, doing our Series A round was absolutely critical, right? Like, we were down to fumes. Right. And it was Christmas time, and we're like, holy shit, are we going to have to lay off our factory people at Christmas? Like, right. That would be terrible. 
Um, and so when we finally got the deal done, we were all expecting to want to, like, go out and have some champagne and celebrate because we got the deal we wanted with the people we wanted. And, you know, everything kind of looks great from the outside, but inside we were all just kind of a little devastated, a little beat up, and just kind of the sobering reality hits you the next morning where it's like, oh, shit, now I, I need to actually go out and deliver on this dream that I sold everybody. Uh, yeah. Real. I know. And There's $3 uh, million dollars in the bank, and I need to turn that into $15 million in a matter of months. So right. No pressure. Yeah, yeah. I And I don't know about you, but um, in, in my case, all of my investors um, either started out as, as people I knew before and were friends and colleagues or became that way because we worked together and, you know, and, and it, because they were investors in my company. And you feel an incredible responsibility to those people. I grew up really, really poor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, talking about money was always a really hard thing. Like, you could get your teeth knocked out for it at home. Right. Um, But to, you know, get over that enough to talk to people and ask them for money was a huge deal. But then, you know, I feel this outsized responsibility to not be wasteful with it. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to return someone a return. And right. not like a, hey, sorry, guys, didn't work out. Right. Like, I could never live with myself. Right. And ultimately, that that integrity is what gets people to invest in you. I mean, you're, you know what I mean? That because that comes across in all the conversations you have when whether you know it or not. So, uh, yeah, I mean, along the way, I, I told somebody, you know, I, uh, one of my bigger investors when when we were putting the deal together, I said, you know, um, I kind of live like um uh, you know, I'm very careful about about money. I've always been really careful about money, and and that, um, and you know, I don't drive new cars all the time and stuff. And everybody knew that. I still don't. <laughs> it's like people are like, "Why don't you buy a new car?" And I'm like, "Well, they're bad for the environment." And they look at me like, like I'm crazy. But it's so much in my DNA, right? And I think that that comes across when you're having conversations with investors and it's a positive thing not a negative thing yep yeah so have we missed anything I don't know I think we covered a lot of ground yeah me too well I'm so I'm so grateful we met when you were getting ready to pitch at Expo West and um, it was so fun to briefly mentor you to get ready to do that, and it was so fun to see you up there and watch you win. It was awesome. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, you were able to give me some really pragmatic advice that mm-hmm. I was able to put into action and see some results from. Yeah, yeah, it was Doesn't beautiful. Get much better than that. And yeah, exactly, exactly, and that really. I, my sense is that that um, winning that pitch slam at Expo West is it, it really opened doors for you. I think um, I would imagine anyway. Yeah, it was it was definitely really helpful, and we've been we've been lucky to have you know several kind of moments like that that just keep feeding the momentum, and you know now we're kind of doing our best to keep up with it and 
trying to change the world. Yeah, well, it needs changing. So <laughs> keep up the great work, and um, uh, we'll be following you, and hopefully we'll catch up soon. That'd be awesome. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Great. Thanks, Tara. Yep. Travel safely. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.